Please turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 5 today. There are some notes inside your program that you want to pull out in, in a pencil or a pen near you so you can take some notes today. We've reached the halfway point in our epic saga series on this Old Testament book of Esther. It's a good time to go just a little bit deeper, just for just a little bit here. We're going to take a look at chapter 5 in a, in a sort of a biblical case study, if you will, on the identity of two of the main characters. A few years ago, before I went into full-time ministry, I, I worked at a hospital as a recreational therapist. And one of my jobs, on, I served with this adjunctive uh, team of therapists, adjunctive therapists, and there were occupational therapists and movement therapists and dance therapists and recreation therapists and music therapist, and we worked in this hospital setting, and one of my jobs as one of the senior recreation leaders was to interview people for the, for the team, to get new members of the team. And so I have some pretty good experience doing that, and I've coached a lot of people who are looking for employment, and we've done mock interviews, and we talk about how to have a successful interview. And one of the overriding principles of a successful interview is this. You have to know yourself. One of the principles of success in interviewing is you have to know yourself. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say that I think one of the important principles of life, I think, is you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself vocationally, and you have to know yourself relationally, and, and you have to definitely know yourself emotionally. You have to know what your identity is all about. Let's say that you're at a party. I mean, we're coming on the holiday season, and so there's going to be party Christmas parties, and maybe you're at a speed dating event. Maybe you're at a get-to-know-you, a mixer, a social, one of those things, and you get to meet someone new. And as you're talking with someone new, inevitably you say, my name is, and what's your name, and all of that. But then the question comes, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, an important question to know for an interview also, but tell me a little bit about yourself. So what do you say when someone asks you that question? In social media today, I mean, there's Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that. And you put together a personal profile and you give yourself a name, a Twitter name or something like that. And then there's a section that says um, you're personal profile. So what do you write? You know, you have your name, but then there's a few words and letters and things, you, sentences you can put together that says, this is what you're about. This is who you are. What, what did you write there? What you tell someone about yourself is all about your identity, how you perceive yourself and how you want to put yourself out there to others. And in Esther chapter 5, we see a case study of two different people's identities, Esther and Haman, and how we come to understand our identities. I think it starts when we're really young. I mean, there's some kids in the, in the CE building over there, nursery and toddlers and pre-K and Nova kids over there, that they're just sort of forming their identities. How about you? When you were just a baby, what were you like? Were you the cute one? Were you the chubby one? Were you the smart one or the artistic one? Were you the organized one or were you the messy one? 
Then you start to grow older and you move out of elementary school and you get to junior high, a time of great confusion. People begin to gather in groups, junior hires do, and so then you're athletic group or you're the music group or you're the smart group or you're the self-assured group, you're the awkward group. In junior high, I think people would all be in that group. Um, You're the social group or you're the shy person. And then you get to high school, and then there's cliques, real, real cliques forming. And there's the jocks and the surfers and the rah-rahs, the scholarship society, the ones in the band or the drama, the stoners, the rockers, the car guys, the popular people, the wannabes, the dating, well, the dating ones are just paired up all around, but uh, the single ones and, and the college bound, the trade school bound. Who did you go to the prom with? What group did you hang out with at homecoming? And then you graduated, and you get to college. And in college, what's interesting in college is you get to reset your identity. You sort of get to make, you, you, you get a whatever you had before. If you didn't like that, well, in college, you could redo it, right? And you could just be someone totally different if you want. And then after you graduate from college, you're a young adult, and it's things like, are you dating or are you single? What sort of friends do you have? Are you married? Do you have kids? Did you pay for your school loans? What car are you driving? Where are you living? Did you get a job? Did you buy a condo? Are you traveling to exotic locales? And as an adult, full-fledged, you know, old guy like, like me and older, it's what investments are you making? How about your kids' achievements, your kids' activities? It's all about your kids' school, and then soon it's then your kids' weddings, and then it's grandkids, and then it's retirement, and then it's traveling. So what eventually happens is that you discover an identity, or you are conflicted with who you are all through life. And then for some, through a series of life events and circumstances and even some losses, much of it is painful, life is, and you arrive at sort of an identity crisis. So let's take a look at chapter 5, just in the brief time that we have together, and we'll take a look at Esther's identity, and then Haman's, we'll, we're calling it his idolatry, but it's his identity too. But let's take a look at this, Esther's identity. The Bible tells us, interestingly enough, we, we covered this a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 7, that Esther is a woman with two names. Take a look at this. It says Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. That was Esther's Hebrew name. And then later in that same verse it says, this was a young woman also known as Esther, her Persian name. Esther appears to be someone with an identity crisis, perhaps, if you just look at this verse. Who is she? Is she Hebrew girl or is she Persian girl? Is she part of God's people or not part of God's people? Does she, does she worship King Xerxes, her husband, or does she worship the king of kings? And maybe this is why she has two names. She's conflicted. And up to this point in the book, she already has an identity crisis, I think. And maybe some of you can relate to Esther. You're, you're sort of here and at, at, at church, and you're singing, and you're part of Nova. You came here at 9.30 or 9.40 or, not, you know, when, whenever you showed up. But you're here, and so we... We, we had the Lord's Supper together, and we sang songs together. And, and you're, I, you're, I'm a Christian. That's what you're saying. But then after we're done in just a few minutes, and you walk out, and you drive home, are you still? Are you still Christian? 
And then you go to work tomorrow, and then what do you like at work? And are you conflicted in your identities too? What we find in chapter 5 is the circumstance of the, of the story press both Esther and Haman to their real identity. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now Xerxes, the king here, is the king of the most powerful, influential kingdom on the face of the earth. He deposed his first wife because she refused to parade her body and her beauty in front of a, drunk, a bunch of drunken partiers. So a few years later, the king says, I want another wife. So they go search the kingdom of the most beautiful women. And, and the most beautiful women are taken to the palace where they get to spend one night with the king along with hundreds of other women at one night. And the king chooses the winner. And then that winner is going to be the next queen, and that's Esther. So up to this point in the story, Esther and the king have been married five years, but their marriage is not good. They are not close. She hasn't seen him in 30 days, and she's been, he's been enjoying his harem, and he has not been faithful to her. So during this time, the king is appointed a second in a command. His name is Haman. In a decree, the king issued a decree that any, everyone must bow to Haman when he enters your presence out of respect and submission. And everyone bows before Haman except for one man who happens to be Esther's adopted father. His name is Mordecai. And Haman just flips out because Mordecai keeps disobeying the king's decree. And Haman decides that not only will he kill Mordecai for his lack of respect, but he knows Mordecai is Jewish. And so he says, we're going to kill all your people. That's 15 million Jews at that time. Now Esther is in the palace and, and she hears about all this and through Mordecai's exhortation, Esther sees that she can use her position in the kingdom and devise a plan to save all those 15 million of her people. Now Esther, Esther, she has a unique identity. She is both Jewish ancestry and Persian royalty. She has a unique ability to be a mediator. She can represent the people before the king and the king before the people. Just like Jesus, he's both divine and human. And he can go before the Father and represent us before God and then God before us. But King Xerxes didn't like to get interrupted when he was sitting on his throne here. So if you came into his presence and he felt interrupted or you were a bother to him, he'd chop your head off. Or he wouldn't, someone would. But if he tipped his scepter towards you, you could speak. And Esther knew that saving this Jewish nation was going to be risky, but like we learned last week, she was willing to do whatever it takes. Verse 3, chapter 5. And then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom will be given to you. Now, this half of the kingdom will be given to you. That's a very common statement. No one would ever take up the king on that offer, but he offered it just so that he would look like he was nice and kind. We read about this common statement in Mark chapter 6. When King Herod said to the same, you, even up, up the half of the kingdom will be given to you, and then 
what happened, what eventually happened, was the beheading of John the baptizer as a result of that. Chapter 5, verse 4. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, let the king together with Haman come, to, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, this is interesting because Esther has this moment. She has the king's ear and his attention. And I think I'm a little surprised at her request. This is her moment, it seems. I, I expected something like Esther saying, you know, honey, king, I've kept a secret from you for five years. Surprise, I'm really Jewish. Haman, he's a mass murderer. The guy outside the palace that's leading that demonstration, that protest march, that's my dad. But she doesn't say this. I'm not sure if this is all of Esther's wisdom or it's God's direction. But we know that there's a game plan in place. It's about composure. It's about patience. It's about timing, I think. It's not about being emotional. It's not about anxiety and obsessiveness with her work here. Chapter 5, verse 5. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to a banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. It will be granted, even half the kingdom. And Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them, and then I will answer the king's question. See, I I think here Esther's coming into her own. She's not perfect, but she's growing. She's demonstrating, well, I... I think she's demonstrating what the book of Galatians calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control here. She's active, but she's demonstrating her faith in that action. She's speaking. She's not silent anymore. She's wise. She's not reactive. She's thinking of others. She's not just thinking of herself. We see here a new identity. She's still Persian royalty. And Persian royalty explains her, but it doesn't define her. I think this is an important point here. In your notes here, the circumstances of your life may explain you, but they don't define you. The circumstances in your life may explain you, but they don't define you. Your circumstances in life explain you, but it's not your identity. Esther is abandoned by her parents, however way that happened, but that doesn't identify identify her, that explains her. She's adopted by a dysfunctional father, that explains her. She's the first victim of human trafficking that we read about in the Bible. That explains her, it doesn't define her. She's married, she married an unbeliever who thinks he's God. That doesn't identify her, that just explains who she is. Esther's identity is now found in being a, in one of God's people, in his family. Now here's another point, I think a good question is, is your identity achieved or is it received? If you're not one of God's people, I think you need to achieve your identity. And that's what we see all around our world. You need to achieve your identity by your beauty. You're the beautiful one or the successful one. or You're the one with a high GPA. You're the dating one. You're the one that's athletic. You have a lot of friends. You're the one with... Uh, 
uh, that, that nice car. You're the one that owns that home. You're the one that went to that school, or this is your job or your position, and that defines you. But if you're one of God's people, your identity is not achieved, it's received. You're loved and you're forgiven and you're provided for and you're blessed and you're gifted. You're given a purpose and a mission. You're adopted into a loving family. You've been given an inheritance. You've been transformed. You have an eternal home in heaven. That's your identity if you're one of God's people. And you don't achieve any of that. You just receive it. You don't have to impress anybody, anybody, and you don't have to do anything. It's like when a baby's born. There's some women with child here, and when your baby is born, you love that baby. Parents love that baby for who they are. And it's the same thing when you're born again. People, God, we are loved for who we are, not for what we can do. Third point we can make about Esther's identity is this. The world lives for their identity. Christ's followers live from their identity. You set yourselves for, at, with an identity. You say, I want to be rich, and so you work hard at that. You say, I want to be skinny, so you work hard at that. You want to be good-looking or popular or successful, or you want to be married, or you want to have a family, and you achieve all of that. And if you do that, sometimes you can get prideful and arrogant, and that's Haman. And if you don't achieve it, sometimes you get depressed. Or if you achieve all of that and then you lose it, you lose your identity. Maybe you're just, you work hard at being healthy. You eat right. You work out. You just want to be healthy in your life. And then you go to the doctor and one day he says, you have cancer. Or maybe you're married and you love being married. You love your spouse and everything seems to be going good, but one day you get served with divorce papers. Or you work hard to be rich. You save your money, you make the right investments, and then one day it all stock market just drops. Maybe you made the varsity. You always wanted to be on the varsity. And so you made that team, but then you got injured. See, Esther gets her identity by belonging to God. She can see herself as part of God's plan to save her people. And she can say things like, if I perish, I perish, carrying out this plan. That's Esther. Let's take a look at Haman's, we'll call it Haman's idolatry. Haman finds his identity through his idolatry. Haman idolizes glory and power and respect. Haman's identity is in popularity. It's in self-importance. It's in getting a lot of attention. The question here is, what is Haman's idolatry and what is Haman's identity? Take a look at chapter 5, verse 9. So they just had this banquet, and then it says here in verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Now, why is Haman so happy? It's easy to know, because he feels like, I made it, right? I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm prideful. I'm, I want to be popular. I made it. He just had dinner with the king and the queen. He's walking tall. He's got swag, right? He's walking out of the palace. He, he just Instagrammed a selfie of himself with the king and the queen with a caption, best day ever, right? Verse 9, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that 
He neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Now, if I was Mordecai at this point, the protests are good. It seemed to be getting some attention. But when Haman walks by after all of that, don't you think you'd start bowing? You know, like making up for lost bows? Not that it would do anything, but Mordecai, I mean, but Mordecai doesn't. He says he neither rose nor he bowed. Mordecai's just sitting, right? And Mordecai's like, Haman, look, no bow. Not bowing at you at all. Look at me. Everyone else is, but not me. That's what Haman's, Haman's thinking. It's a great day. It's the best day ever, except for Mordecai. So what does Haman do? Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and called together his friends and his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. It's not just today I had this special dinner. Tomorrow I get to go back to that. But in verse 13, but all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. Haman has all this good stuff happening to him because he's wrapped his identity in his idolatry. He's wanted all of this his whole life. His wife, his sons, his friends are all there. He's saying, this is the best day ever. This is the greatest. I was the only one with the king and the queen. But I'm still bothered by one thing. That know-nothing guy, Mordecai, still won't bow down to me. Why? Because Haman idolizes respect in honor, in position. We can make this point here. If our identity is found in our idolatry, it leads to our misery. If our identity is found in, in our idolatry, it's always going to lead to our misery, no matter what we get. And Mordecai happens to be one who, who sees this and exposes his idol. Verse 14 his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's 75 feet tall. That's pretty high. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it, crucified on it, really. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Now, idolatry is the problem in the Bible. I, Haman's idolatry, remember, is respect, it's popularity, it's, it's honor. Here's another point we can make here. It's idolatry is taking good things and making them God things. We've said this before. Idolatry is simply make, taking good things and making them God things. Let me, let's just examine this a little. Is it okay, is it good for a person to want respect and honor? Yeah, I think it's a good thing. If you to want respect and honor. We can take a good thing like respect and honor and we worship it and we live for it and we make it our ultimate and then it becomes our identity and it becomes our God. That's a bad thing. Here's another insight into Haman's idolatry. Whatever we passionately defend could be our idol. 
Haman's idol of respect and honor is threatened by Mordecai. He says, well, let's build a 75-foot pole and crucify Mordecai on it so that the whole world can see what happens if you disrespect me. It, it's similar to what happens. I mean, we go to a really dark place sometimes and we've idolized something. Maybe you're dating somebody and thing, things seem to be going well, but then all of a sudden you start to realize that it's not going so well after a while. And you go to a very dark place. Maybe you, you've always wanted to be a, 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 a parent. So you have some kids and, and the kids are growing up so great and they're so smart and they're so musically inclined and they're so athletic and they're so good looking and you dress them in the best clothes and you, everyone says they're great kids and, and it's so wonderful. But then you take your child to the doctor because they're not feeling well and the doctor says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry there's nothing we can do for him. And you go to a very dark place. Now I'm not saying it's wrong to grieve any of that because I think it's I think it's emotionally healthy to grieve those things. But to go to a dark place where depression rules you and you have uncontrolled anger against God and others and you get obsessive and you have anxiety over that, that dark place. You want to find your idols in your life? You're wondering if you really do have idols? Ask yourself, what do I get really emotional about? What do I get really angry about? And maybe you'll find your idols there. From the pastor's heart of, of John in 1 John chapter 5, he says in the very last words of 1 John, he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He says, Move from your idolatry towards your identity as a child of God through Jesus Christ. The good news is this, Nova. Nova, the good news is this, is that you can have an identity with Jesus Christ that is secure you see, idols lie. They say, if you possess me, you're going to get everything you want. And if you seek me, you can have it all. But in the end, idols will always disappoint. And Haman is a tragic product of someone who has sought idols rather than their identity in Almighty God. Esther's identity changed. She's not perfect, but she's, and she's not so consumed with herself but she's consumed more with doing God's plan and his mission. She's willing to lose her life that others might be saved. Let me just read you two last verses. They're in your notes. And here we find our identity in Christ. John chapter 1 says, Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called, find our identity as children of God.
Amen. Let's all stand. Well, I'm sorry. Let's stay seated for a second. Sorry. Tuesday is Veterans Day. And in our midst, before we dismiss, and we've done this every year and I want to do it this year, if you served in the military, we want to thank you and we'd like you to stand right now if you have served in the military. Would you please stand? We want to thank you. Thank you. Let's all stand. We're getting ready to dismiss to the, to the, to the plaza for plaza time and, and uh, snacks and coffee and, and great friendship. If you are a guest here today, please stay. I'd love to meet you and others would love to talk with you and get to know you. And for now, we close with this benediction from 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the name of God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.